wants to take us home tonight, that'd be really good with me. Tonight, uh, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to finish up chapter 1 tonight in a study I've entitled The Character of the Church Age. But here in this remaining chapter is, is kind of a picture, if you will, of all of the church from that very first founding moment at Pentecost to the day in which we live right up until the time that the Lord comes and gets us via the rapture of the church or whether you pass on from this life to the next as an individual. The church age is the age in which we live. It is the age in which we have our being. It is the age in which those who have named the name of Christ exist from that time to this. Before we get there tonight, I, I want to just take a moment and pray. Um, you know, one of the benefits, one of the blessings of being uh, who we are as Calvary Chapel is that we're not a denomination. We do have a fairly substantial organizational structure. And uh, last night I got a email from Pastor Don McClure and uh, one of our pastors in, actually in Plano, Texas, uh, woke up to find his wife home with Jesus. And so we want to lift them up. You know, it's one of those things that it's hard to fathom. You know, I can tell you after 38, going on 39 years for Connie and I, I can't even think on that. That's more than I can imagine. And so we're going to pray for Pastor Rick and his family, the church there in Plano and Asked that God would just get them through this very difficult time. She'd been ill for a while, but was supposedly on the mend, and now she's really on the mend. Amen. But I know Rick's heart is broken, and rightly so. And so would you join me? We'll pray for him, for the church, and then also for our time in the Word tonight. Father, we, we come as fellow members of one big family. Lord, we here on this little mountaintop community in California linked together by the Spirit of the living God and by the sacrifice made for all of us in Calvary's cross, Lord, when one member of the body hurts, your word declares we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. And tonight, Brother Rick, his family, his grown children, Lord, that church there in Texas is hurting. They're agonized over the loss of Denise. And God, we know that you don't make mistakes, that it wasn't one of those surprises that caught you off guard. You knew the very nanosecond she would take her last breath and be ushered into glory. But Lord, there's a hole in that family, Lord, and in that church. And we just ask that you'd be gracious and that you'd be kind and tender that you'd bring people alongside, Lord, to just touch them in a very special way. God, pray that the prayers of the saints being offered up even now, Lord, would bring them comfort. We pray that, like Jeremiah said, the balm of Gilead would heal their wounds. God, that you would just by your spirit do what only you can do. Or words can't convey what they're going through, and so we simply ask that you would send your Holy Spirit in a special measure to guard them, guide them, direct them, be with the church, be with the ladies' ministry. Watch over them, Lord, and tonight as we open your word, 
privileged to do so. That you would bring it uh, from the pages into our hearts and minds in a very special way, God. That we would see the character, the nature, how we plug right into this picture this evening. God, would you bless us with your presence by your Spirit in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 9, here in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. And it says there, John, it says, I, John, personalizes it, makes sure that we understand who it is. Both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so he lays out here a very specific thing, and it is true for each one of us that we live and breathe uh, in this church age. And he says some things about the church here that we can pick up. And before we get there, the church age, as I said, 40 days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, in, an, in a room, the disciples gathered together. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. The church as we know it began uh, that night, nearly 2,000 years ago. And so the church birthed on that day. The church is going to continue onward and, and makes it to the day in which we live. We're still in the church age. The church is still alive. And the reason that this is so important is that letters that are going to be written beginning in chapter 2 are going to be to those churches of the church age. And they will represent the church from then to the church uh, that one day will be snatched away, likely us. But what follows the church age, once the church is taken out, mysteriously absent from chapter 4 on, is none other than the tribulation. None other than that time of Jacob's trouble. None other than the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of that period of time. It's going to be horrors that the world has never seen, culminating with the battle of Armageddon and then the second coming of Christ. And so as we think on the church age, we need to keep our minds open to the great expanse that it represents. It has historical context, it has present day context, and it has future context. And if you don't remember that, you're going to have a tough time understanding the next couple of chapters. Because it isn't just speaking about what was when John was. It wasn't speaking about what historically was after John was, but before us. It's not just take talking about us today, and it is not just talking about those Christians who are yet future. It is talking about the whole kit and caboodle, all of it. Day one to the very last Christian that one day will profess Christ, and then the rapture will occur, followed by the tribulation followed by the Lord returning to do battle once and for all with evil, putting an end to it. And so the church age. And it has several things, three of which are found in this passage. First, it is an age of individual witness. Now, as I said, 
What does John say? Notice what it is. That he was literally a companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the tribulation. He's talking about the same tribulation that Jesus spoke of. For in this world you will have tribulation. Speaking of those things that every single member of the church goes through. All of us. He's not talking about the tribulation. He's talking about what happens to every last saint that's ever been born. For some of us, tribulation comes from our families. For some of us, tribulation comes at work. Right now here in America, we're going through a little bit of tribulation as the body of Christ. The fact that you could be a florist and refuse to do a gay wedding of people whom you have faithfully served for years, for years, whom did not themselves actually have a problem with you saying no to doing the flowers for their wedding. Remember, that gay couple in Washington State did not have a problem with the florist saying no. They understood her conviction. But then to have the government step in and file a lawsuit threatening to take away her home, her business, and all of her money simply because she refuses to renounce Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are also going through some tribulation. That's the world we live in. Ask those Christians, those Coptic Christians who were beheaded in Libya if they went through tribulation. Ask those imprisoned right now in the city of Kobani in, in Turkey. Ask them if they're going through tribulation. Ask the children that have been kidnapped, tortured, murdered, and raped because they're Christians. If they're going through tribulation, they're going through tribulation. There has always been tribulation for Christians. It's gone through periods of ups and downs with its severity. And we here in this country, if you remember, we were actually founded on tribulation. As the Dutch pilgrims, as those who came from uh, Europe came here, they came seeking freedom from religious persecution. They were being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. They didn't want to buy into the Church of England. And so they came here seeking freedom. They were actually persecuted. They went through tribulations to be here. So the church has always gone through tribulation. And it's always individual for every last one of us. Always. And so what does John say? He says to us that he was imprisoned there on that island for really two very specific things. And I think it's important that we see them. As you look at that individual witness that we have, think about it for a second. Because you're not going through the Great Tribulation. If you think you are, I would just encourage you to read First Thessalonians chapter 5, the first nine verses. And draw, draw contrasts there between the you and the us and the they and the them. It will become very clear to you exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he gets to verse 9. When he says, for God has not appointed us, he's referring to two groups of people, the they and the them who do not know the Lord, and the us, the we, and the you who do, will not go through the wrath of God, but we were guaranteed salvation. So he's not talking about us going through the tribulation. We're going to be spared from that. 
but tribulation itself, you can count on it. You're going to go through tough times in life for your faith. John is writing this apocalypse, this unveiling from a small rocky island in the Aegean Sea. He's 15 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey, not very far from the city of Ephesus. He's been banished there by the Roman emperor Domitian, who would go on to slaughter tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe even so much as a million or more Christians, simply because they were a threat to the Roman government. There's been tribulation on this earth since these words were written. But why was he there? Notice two things. You see, the first characteristic is this is personal for every last one of us. Notice it. He was imprisoned for the witness of the word. Simply speaking the word. If you want to have tribulation in our country right now, simply preach the word. All you got to do is repeat what it says. That's it. And you will be persecuted in our country. Maybe not here in this church, but in the government square, absolutely. Entertainment, uncategorically, you will be persecuted. Try being a Christian in Hollywood. Ask Kirk Cameron what it's like to try and make movies in Hollywood. Kirk is a personal friend of Jack Hibbs. Had many, many conversations. He says, you you really can't even imagine what persecution is until you try and actively live out your faith. There are a few, but they are persecuted relentlessly. Kirk's made it very well known, were it not for a whole bunch of extremely wealthy donors that have paid for the movies he'd made themselves, that they would never get made. They're that persecuted. Just simply for saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Word. Of course, we know who who the Word is. Amen? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And without the Word was nothing made that was made, and all things were made by Him and for Him and through Him, your Bible says. Jesus Christ is the living Word, and this Word declares Him. And this book declares Him. He was there simply because he preached the word. And notice the second thing, the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know how many times I've reminded you that you can talk about God all day long. And you will not be persecuted. You will very rarely, if ever, be persecuted for talking about God. It's fairly commonplace in almost every culture in the world. But the moment you say Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be persecuted. So he was there for two things. The testimony of the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I would say to you, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Ups and downs of severity, but the song remains the same. The second thing we see in this passage, it's really the next nine verses. John was in worship. 
Now that's hard to imagine. Think of where he is. It's not like the island that we see today that's kind of a tourist destination. This was a rocky outcropping. Probably the tallest plant at the time on the island was about like a piece of sagebrush, maybe knee, waist high if it was a big one. It was windswept. The southern Aegean Sea is famous for the winds that blow from the Alps in Europe down into the Aegean Sea. That's why Paul was so worried about being shipwrecked. If you left at the wrong time and the winds were blowing, you would end up in Africa after leaving the coast of modern-day Turkey. This was a very inhospitable place that he was imprisoned. There was nothing there save the handful of things that people would float by the island knowing it's a prison and they would toss out on the beach. There may have been no wildlife whatsoever, possibly some goats. It would have been a tough place to be. It was a prison in every sense of the word. And yet, what's John doing? Check out what he says next. For I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I believe that phrase, the Lord's day, is actually referring to what he's seeing, looking forward, the day of the Lord. Could have been that he was talking about his day of worship, but it's likely he would have simply said the first day of the week, if that's what he meant, because the church by that time was meeting on the first day of the week. So I think he's seeing what is coming next in the rest of the book of Revelation. He was in the spirit. In other words, he's like opened up his heart and mind to God, and he is seeing Heaven. He's understanding exactly what's going on in the heavenlies. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Notice it was a voice. It was not a trumpet. It was like a trumpet. In other words, it was a clarion call. It was a herald. It was, it was that voice that was unmistakable. It wasn't like someone was just, hey, John, what's happening? It was thus says the Lord. He was in the spirit. On the Lord's day, saying, now we know who the voice is, because there's only one Alpha and Omega, amen? I am, ego ime, self-caused, uncaused cause of everything else. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. And what you see right in a book, and notice what he says to do with it. This isn't a message that he just given to him because John's in some special place of worship. Remember that the word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, authored by men, but given not for any special reason to any one person, but always for the entire church. It's given for us to know. And so he says very clearly, send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Then he names them by name to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned around, he now turns around and he gazes. And he says, I saw seven golden lampstands. This dude is in, he is in heaven. He's, he's having a vision from the Lord. Now, I want to make the distinction between visions and dreams. People are often confused by them. It's actually quite simple. Visions happen when you're awake, and dreams happen when you're asleep. It's real simple. 
We would call visions basically daydreams. That's how we would describe them generally. But normally, interestingly enough, when you have those types of things, they're normally of real things in your life. Something has triggered it. You're going through some thought processes. And in this case, they are Holy Spirit-inspired visions when he's awake. He's seeing these things. He's not just hearing them. He's seeing them. Now, is that in the Spirit? More than likely. But they are just as visual nonetheless. I have had visions. Connie and I have had both the same visions of a couple of things. We've had those times when it's like, that was totally the Lord speaking to us. I remember with absolute distinction, we had been married just a handful of years so we were really young, still about the age of my son. We were in our 20s. And we had come up to go cross-country skiing at what was still then Green Valley Nordic Center. And yes, we had, you know, the full-on knickers and everything. We looked pointy hats, all of it. We had the whole thing. And we'd come up and we'd gone and there just really wasn't quite enough snow. And we turned around, we came back down Green Valley Lake Road and we parked by a tree that's no longer there because it was taken out by the slide fire. But we stood in that corner, which is the very top corner of what is today Calvary Chapel Christian Camp. This was 20 years before it was even built and said, wouldn't it be awesome to be involved in a camping ministry right here? And we were. Bad visions. John's having a vision. God's speaking to him. John was in two places at the same time. Something that you need to see here. He was in the chains of Rome. In other words, he was absolutely a captive of the Roman Empire. But he was also in the care of Jesus by the Spirit. And that's where we are as the church. Throughout the church age, the church has always lived here on this earth, but we have also lived in the spirit wherever we are. That's why people think we're kind of weird sometimes. Because we'll say things like, well, the Lord told me. Well, the Lord did tell me. Just because you don't believe it doesn't make any less true, I say to people at some, you know, at some point in time. It's like, maybe you don't believe that he is real and that he speaks to his people by the power of his spirit, but I do. It's where John was. He was receiving from the Lord uh, in the Spirit that day. So all of us live in both the flesh and the Spirit. We are fleshly beings wandering around this world. We still need our legs. That's why you want to take care of your knees, all those kind of things. But you also live in the Spirit. So you are both flesh and Spirit simultaneously. It's exactly what John was saying. He said, I'm physically imprisoned in this island, but in the Spirit, I'm in heaven. We need to live our lives that way. That's who we are as Christians. We live in the human environment. We live in the heavenly environment. We live in this world, but we live for the next. Do you see the picture? That's why we we love to say, this world is not my home. I'm a citizen of heaven. That's why Joshua and Caleb were so blessed when they were thinking of Canaan. They weren't thinking of the wilderness wandering. They were thinking of what it would be like to be in the promised land. They were with the rest of the Jews wandering in the wilderness. But in their minds, they wanted to be in Canaan. 
That's us. That's you. That's me. And we can't overemphasize one for the other. We have to take both as they are. It's a, it's a life of instinctive worship. We're always kind of on our face before the Lord. I look at this passage and I'm just like, you know, this is the way we should all be living our lives. Yes, we go through stuff. We go through junk. We go through things. Poor Dan came in to, for prayer on Tuesday. And by the way, we did have it, so those of you didn't make it. We still had it. Just because it was frozen outside, we were still there. But he was having just one of those days where it's like, man, did God forget where I did just lose my address in his address book or whatever? He was talking about his car problems. He came in. He thought he had another car problem. I said, well, let's pray for your car. We prayed for his car. He literally took a photo. It's still on his camera. You can go look at it of a crack on one of his heads. You can see it. I want you to look at the photo of the crack on that head and then go look at the engine right now. There's no crack on that head. I, I saw the picture myself. We live in two places, but we have access to the other one. We can't be so taken up with being in Christ that we forget that we're still going to be in Colossae too. You know, we're still going to be in our Jerusalem or whatever. And we can't be so concerned about being where we live that, that we have the wrong ideas about heaven. One pictures us in that separation because we're not to be like the world. We're just in it. Amen. And the other gives us a picture of sanctification. In other words, we're still in the world, but we're supposed to be like Christ. They're two totally different things, but they're attached to each other. You don't get to live out your life in the heavenlies. You have to live out your life here on this earth, in the earthly. But you want to live a heavenly life. That's the instinctive life of worship. That's what it is. We, we sit there and we just go, God, thank you for loving us. We keep those places in balance. Right now, we kind of live in man's day and in man's time, if you want to look at it that way. Because this is the age of man. This is as good as it gets for mankind. I don't know how many of you saw it. For those of you that are football fans, there, there is a, a deal underway to put a brand spanking new football stadium for the what will be, again, probably the Los Angeles Rams. If you remember, they came from here. We're here for 38 years. It was awesome. I was looking at that stadium. Man, that's an awesome stadium. Uh, unfortunately, my San Diego Chargers might be the Los Angeles Chargers, but I'm sharing with the Raiders. That cannot happen. Death will ensue from that one. Can you imagine them sharing locker rooms? Not happening. But we live in man's day. doesn't mean everything man does is bad or evil. It just simply means a man's got his way right now. We kind of get to do some of the things that we want to do. But one day, Jesus is coming again. And it's going to be the Lord's day, permanently. All this stuff's going to be over. You're not going to, you know, there's going to be, there'll be no further arrests of Justin Bieber. <laughs> you will not see Lindsay Lohan on the front page of anything ever again. You know, amen. You know, right now, it's just like, really, is that, that's newsworthy? Justin Bieber got another tattoo. And so he says, look, we live in the here and now, but we live for the hereafter. Don't forget that. 
If you get caught up thinking this is all there is, you're going to be one miserable person. Because if this is all there is, you have reason to be miserable. Because most of us ain't getting our piece of the pie. Amen? There's a lot of, there's a lot of unpied people in here tonight. You get like crumbs. You get, the, you know the scrapings in the bottom of the, that's kind of, you know, sometimes you feel like, yeah, well, we kind of scrape out the crust there. Yeah, life's like that. But heaven's not like that. You don't have to worry about treated, being treated unfairly by Jesus when you get to heaven. And we're all going to be just joyous when we get there. What follows next is a ninefold description of the Lord Himself. And it begins in verse 13. Uh, and it actually continues all the way through uh, the next eight verses or so. And there are nine things that we can pull out one at a time here. And let's just look at them. Verse 13, it goes on to say, because really God is the unknowable one. If you think about it, we know so little about God. Have you ever thought about what you actually know about God? It's not much. And I can tell you how you can figure that out really quickly. If you look at all of the cumulative effect of science from day one till now, and you look at all of the science that we have done, we still can't figure out why the stars stay in space. We haven't got a clue why we can't figure out a cure for cancer. We still haven't unwound the human genome. Oh, we've charted it endlessly. We have all these things that we can think on and ponder and stuff that we know, and God just speaks those things into existence. He is truly unknowable. He didn't wake up one morning and go, gosh, what do I do? You know, I really need a planet for my people to live on. He didn't have to have a conference. He didn't teleconference with some other universe and go, well, what do you guys got for a planet for people? He spoke it, and it was. He's truly unknowable. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, in other words, in the midst, we're going to find out of the lampstands, which are the churches. Notice it says that. The seven churches are the seven lampstands. We'll get to that in a little bit. One like the Son of Man, clothed in a garment down to his feet and girded to the chest with a golden band. He gets a picture of Jesus. He's like, here's the Lord. Isaiah gets the same picture, by the way. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Him sitting on the throne in heaven, but his feet reach the earth. He, he spans between the two. And when you think about that, that's transdimensional if you haven't figured that one out yet. Because there is a heaven that's beyond what we see. There are angels and demons. We, we know they're here. Scripture declares that, but we can't see them. There are other dimensions other than the ones that we know to exist. Some scientists believe there may be as many as ten or more dimensions of space and time outside of what we know to be true. And yet the Lord God is beyond all of them. He transcends them. He's outside of space. He's outside of time. And in fact, he is the creator of all of those things. No wonder this book is called The Unveiling. He's in his imperial form right now, and we can't see him. We don't know who he is. When he was on the cross, he was stripped down and stuck on the cross. But he's not stripped down and he's not stuck on the cross anymore. He is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, omnipotent. He is, he is El Shaddai. He is the all-powerful one. And in fact, 
So great was God's care over Jesus that you remember he actually clothed his own son. He had been stripped down and nailed to a cross and God clothed him with darkness, didn't he? Isn't that what happened at the cross? All of a sudden it was noon and it became dark as night and the clouds descended and the voice spoke. God said, oh no, you're not doing this to my son. I'll cover him up myself. Now he's in glory and John sees him clothed in that garment just conceals his shoulders, his feet. And so when he sees him, he's really getting a picture that's different than what he knew of Jesus. Remember, this is the same John that put his head on Jesus' breast. Literally got to put his head on the chest of Jesus and listen to his heartbeat. And now he's seeing him in his royal splendor. He's unknowable. We know a little bit about him, but not much relative to who he is. The second thing, he's the unemotional one, and it's the B part of that verse. He's girded about the chest with a golden band. It, it kind of shows that his heart's being kept in. It, this one happens to be around his, his chest. His heart's not exposed. You see, it would have to be that way because he can't be moved by pity, he can't be moved by compassion, he can't be moved by anything, because one day he's going to judge this earth, and he's going to put to death personally billions of people. He can't be moved by emotion. He now back in heaven is absolutely, fully, perfectly God. He will judge with absolute righteousness, you all know that if you have children, you don't have children, you probably did this yourself. You know, there's a thing that kids can do. They have a way they can look at their parents, and no matter what they've done, I just murdered somebody. And you're like, well, they probably deserved it. There's something that happens with parents. When you see your own kids, and they bat their eyes, and a couple of little tears stream down their cheeks, and they just go, yeah, I just burned down the house, but... It's going to, I don't know what happened. You're not ever going to move Jesus like that. It's not going to happen. That's very important. Because if he can be moved, then he also is not fair. He's not just. He's not actually righteous anymore. Because then people could manipulate him by emotion. He is completely unemotional in that sense. That doesn't mean he didn't cry. It doesn't mean he doesn't feel pain. doesn't mean he doesn't long for and hurt for us. But he cannot be moved to anything other than who he is by those emotions. He will always be exactly who he is. That band, that golden band, that perfect band is keeping his heart in check. He's going to be impassive. He's going to be impartial, impervious. All those things will be true of the Lord Jesus. A third thing, he's the unimpeachable one. We we think of the, the, the white head, and it says here his head and his hair were like white as wool, white as the snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Isaiah saw the same thing. Though your skin, sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as wool. He saw the same basic picture of Jesus, except he saw it nearly 700 years earlier. And so he's, he's seeing this picture of one who... Uh, is transcendent of time. You, You see, Jesus knew what it was like to be tempted 
but he was yet without sin. No one will ever be able to bring an impeachable offense against your Christ, our Lord Jesus. He withstood everything the devil could throw at him, and he did not one of those things. And it would have been in his benefit to do it at that time. He was hungry. Command these stones to be turned to bread. Look, if you're really who you say you are, I'm going to give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Throw yourself down off of here. Surely your angels will give charge over you. No one will ever bring a charge against Jesus of anything that would be a negative thing. He will withstand every argument ever brought against him. There's a legend that was believed by the Mediterranean sailors, ultimately brought to our own shores. And in fact, here in California, it was believed during the gold rush to have some merit. But the legend, though it transformed in many cultures, was basically this. They, they believed that when they went out onto the sea, they were protected by all kinds of superstitious things. But they also believed that there were things that were in the sea uh, that they could not be protected from. And one of them was a, a mountain in the sea that was filled with treasure. It was called a lodestone mountain. And they believed that they got too close to it, that their ship would be drawn in, that it would be overwhelming, and they would be dashed on the rocks. Sin is like that. For most people, sometimes daily, moment by moment, we are drawn to sin. The old nature is still very much alive. Amen? It's like that mountain. Kind of, it's like it's over there. I'm always stunned, you know, as you're flipping through the Internet stories. There's always things that are a little questionable on there, right? Isn't it weird how your mind is drawn to, well, just click on that. And you can see that it's nothing that you should be reading, and yet your mind is drawn to, well, you know, maybe it's a nice article about that bad thing. It's because you have a sin nature still. Amen? You're drawn to it. The wind, the tide of sin will tug on each of us, but it did not tug on Jesus. There was nothing on this earth that he was needing. There wasn't anything he came here that he couldn't have had in heaven. He was not drawn to sin. The devil tried hard. The devil tried long. But Jesus was absolutely perfect. The fourth thing, he's the undeceivable one. Now we know that's not true with Adam and Eve. Amen? Wasn't that actually one of the sins involved there? And I'm careful not to pick out whether it was a man or a woman. As far as I'm concerned, they're both knuckleheads. I'm going to slap both of them when I get there. Nah, don't do that. That's not a good thing. It does kind of make you feel good thinking about it. Notice his eyes were like a flame of fire. There's nothing that gets past Jesus. He's not, he's not sitting there going, well, sure pulled that one over on me. I don't know how my people got there. You, you see that fire that's being spoken of there burns right through our hearts, right through the toughest lumber, right through the buildings, the strongest steel. It, it burns right straight through absolutely everything. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees beyond the things that would fool other people. We think we're pretty wise and crafty, don't we, at times? I have, let me just share with you as a pastor, I am a professional at picking out liars. Hey, I am. 
People come to me with every conceivable story you can possibly imagine, especially when they want something. I can't tell you how many people have come and they forgot that they actually met with me two weeks earlier and got money out of me then. Well, you know, I'm still waiting for my welfare check and, you know, and they give me a completely different story. But I can also tell you that every once in a while one gets by me. One never gets by Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees through every one of your lame excuses. And mine too. He's not deceived in any way, shape, or form by anything that we say, nothing that we can concoct. Nobody's fooling him. A fifth thing is the undeterrable one. Notice his feet were like brass refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. You you see, there was a point in time when the, the fangs of the serpent actually got to Jesus. Remember the prophecy? The serpent would bite him, but he would eventually crush the head of the serpent. Well, the serpent got to Jesus on the cross, or so the serpent thought. There were some fangs stuck in his feet, nailed him to the tree. But didn't deter Jesus, did it? Didn't make a bit of difference that he had been hung on a Roman cross. No one can stand in his way. No power on earth. The Romans, forget it. They were, what were the Romans to Jesus, really? He died because it pleased God to bruise him. He gave his life a ransom for many because he wanted to. Not because he had somehow, you know, been defeated. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords to this day. And what he says shall stand. That's why he is the Alpha and the Omega. When it's all said and done, he's going to be the one that's going to be standing at the end, and we're going to be worshiping him. You ever notice how Jesus kind of had an unhurried calm about him? Wherever he went, he was always doing something important, but he was never in a hurry to get there. Do you know why that is? He was God. He was perfect in all of that. So whether he was going to the cross or going to heal you know, somebody of their sickness or going to feed some people that needed food or whether he was going to preach a message, his timing was perfect because every second that he was here was mapped out before he ever got here. He couldn't be deterred. The sixth thing is the unanswerable one. Notice it's the B part again. It's like the voice, the sound of many waters. When Jesus speaks, think of this for a moment. It's using an analogy here that we can understand. If you've ever been to a major waterfall and you come with us to Mammoth and you go to Rainbow Falls, that's a pretty good-sized fall in the spring. But if you've ever traveled, say, to Niagara Falls, and, and the noise is deafening. Uh, I've been to the falls at Iguazu, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, natural wonders of the world in Brazil. And when you travel in a, in a riverboat, they, they get you down actually into the chasm below the falls, and you're in a jet boat. And it is so loud that if our faces are this far apart, you can yell as loud as you want to yell, and I cannot hear you. It's not possible. The sound of many waters is that loud. That's just a waterfall. If you go to Niagara, you know, astounding, 12 million cubic feet of water go over Niagara Falls every minute. Do the, do the math on that. A cubic feet is about a gallon and a half. 
It's almost 20 pounds of water. Think about it for a second. You're talking about tens of millions of pounds, hundreds of thousands of tons of water every minute crashing on the rocks below. God's voice can't be answered. It will always be louder than any waterfall. Once he speaks, it's true. And right now, mankind is allowed to have his voice. Amen? We are. We get to talk. We get to shout. We get to jump up and down. The pundits get to do their thing. People who don't love the Lord have their way right now. They're shouting at God, we're going to kill absolutely as many babies as we think we should. It's a woman's right to choose. Man is shouting at God. God's not listening. His voice is much louder than that. Well, we think marriage should be between two people who love each other, no matter what their gender is. God's not listening. He's not going to change. You're not going to convince him by force of argument. With all of our screaming and yelling and shouting and lawmaking and everything else, God's character remains unchanged. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he said, he means. Doesn't do us any good, but we do. But nobody's going to answer him. The seventh thing, he's also the unparalleled one. And in his right hand had seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And these stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the symbolism kind of points out to us his simple control over everything. He, he no matter what we may think, definitely is sovereign over all the world. And so he has his churches, he has his plans, he has his people. His Holy Spirit is here, and his forces are holding at bay right now evil. That's why Scripture says, and such it will be so until the restrainer is removed. When the Holy Spirit's taken out, when the church is gone, and when there's no more Holy Spirit working in the world, all hell is going to break loose on this earth. Because there's none like him. And right now he is restraining by the Holy Spirit evil. If evil were allowed to, to do what evil could do right now, apart from the forces of good in this world because of Christ, this world would already have been blown to bits. Because there are crazy people all over this planet. And God, one at a time, is selecting out and, and moving and solving things that are unsolvable by us. There's none like him. He's not careless. Think about it. His hands hold the stars in their places. But they also hold your heart. Same hands. There's none like him. He cares about the sparrow that falls to the ground. And yet he governs the affairs of all of mankind simultaneously. An eighth thing. He's the unconquerable one. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The word of God is quick. It's powerful. Notice here that what's being said is it's, it's that speaking forth. God spoke the universe into existence. Do we really think that we can outdo God? He just simply said, and it was. 
ten times in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, the Lord speaks and it was. Not he speaks and something began to happen and he manipulated it. He spoke it into existence. Period. Mankind hasn't figured out how to do that yet. I challenge you. The rest of your days here on earth, try and speak something into existence. Start with a flea or something, you know, a toothpick. Speak a toothpick into existence. I want you all to take that as a task the rest of your days. A toothpick and see if it pops out on your desk or something. It won't because you're not God, neither am I. He is absolutely unconquerable. What he does with simply the word of his mouth, we can't do with the mighty forces of the world. No one's ever going to defeat God. Out of his mouth went that speaking forth of the word. And last of all, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. He's the unapproachable one. You see, right now, if you were to see God, you would die. You would be consumed instantaneously by the brightness of his coming. And that is exactly what will happen to the armies of the earth when they stand against him, when he does come without salvation in their hearts. They would not be able to stand. He's unapproachable in that sense. He is absolutely unapproachable in his majesty because we are sin-filled and he is sinless. And so what it says... His countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. Think about the sun for a second. For those of you that care about such things, the sun is losing weight by radiation of a figure of something about almost four and a half million tons of mass per second are being consumed by the sun burning. Four and a half million tons per second are being consumed by the sun just existing. They give you an idea of the, of the physical strength of the power of that kind of heat. If you simply took one pound of matter, solid matter, and you converted it completely to energy. We kind of do that when we set off nuclear weapons. But if you did that, it would generate enough heat to melt 25 million tons of solid rock into lava. Jesus is brighter than that. Our sun is a puny little star compared to some of the giant stars in our universe. And yet God is bigger than all of those things. He's unapproachable. None of you, I don't know if you've ever done it, you know, probably every kid in school has made the little slit in the box to try and look at the sun so you can kind of look at it without looking at it. You put on a welder's helmet or whatever and stare at this. Not a good idea. Now imagine infinitely greater power. He's totally unapproachable. You'd just be gone. Now in all of that, in other words, the S-O-N is stronger than the S-U-N. Amen? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Notice what John says, and when I saw him, get this, because all these things now make sense. When I saw him, what did he do? We stopped at the middle of the verse. He turned around. I saw him. When people, you know, bless them, we're seeing the glory of God. Can I remind you that every time in the entire Bible when anyone has seen the glory of God, they did not do this. They did this. 
They didn't stand up and do anything. They fell down on their face before a holy God. John does the same thing. I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Do you remember in the Old Testament a guy named Eliakim? Do you remember what he was? He was the keeper of the keys. And whoever had the keys to the kingdom could unlock the kingdom. And whatever was unlocked stayed unlocked. And whatever was locked stayed locked, period. This is a picture of Jesus having the keys to everything that ever was. I have the keys to death. Right now, death reigns, amen? From Adam until we go home to be with Jesus, death reigns. You haven't figured it out. Every last one, all y'all is going to die someday if we don't see the rapture first. You're going to croak, dead. The X is in your eyes, just like the cartoons. (laughs) You're all going to die. I don't care how much ginkgo biloba you take. I don't care how much nani juice you drink. I don't care about you. Go get a subscription to the vitamin club. I don't care. You're still croaking. Because you live in a mortal body created for this earth, and one day this earth is no longer going to exist. It is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He has those keys. And when he unlocks that time in history, death is dead. I love that. Death one day will be dead. What is Ephesians 2? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Amen? But he hath made us alive in Christ. He has the keys. He alone, he says, I was the one who was dead, but I am alive and I am alive forevermore. Now do you know why the prophet Isaiah called him the father of eternity? John's having that revealed. He puts his hand on him. He says, John, it's okay. It's me. Yep, I was dead. Do you realize the last time that John saw Jesus? He had been risen from the dead. Now he knows for sure that he's fully alive. Maybe he wasn't sure at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's sure now. What a Savior. And the final thing as we wrap this up, just a couple more verses. I think we can get to them quickly. And it gives us again the outline of the whole book. It's an age of intelligent waiting. Persistent waiting. Waiting nonetheless. And we don't like that, do we? I don't like waiting. I am, I am like, if I do this, this, and this, then this should happen. That's who I am. I'm a spreadsheet kind of guy. I did A, I did B, I did C, I did D. It's time for E to happen. It's the way I work. When I go ask for a hamburger with no mayonnaise on it, I specifically expect it to come back with no mayonnaise on it. I ask for that. And I don't like waiting when they blow it. It's like, why did I could been here for three and a half minutes. <laughs> but we have to be persistent in that intelligent waiting. We're not waiting dumb. Remember, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We sorrow as people who have hope. We're waiting for the return of our Savior, or we're waiting to go be with Him. And if that takes the full amount of your lifetime, praise the Lord. And if He comes in the rapture, praise the Lord. But we have to wait. And it needs to be intelligent. 
Remember, this is the unveiling. Notice what it says. I write these things. Now write these things. Verse 19 is, is the outline of the whole book, which you have seen. The things which are and the things which will take place after this. So he's talking about past, present, future. And he says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And that word stars there means messengers or heralds. That's what's being translated there. It means someone who speaks for those churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So we have it interpreted for us. It's very clear. The lampstands are the churches. And those who are the stars are the voices of those churches, likely the pastors, likely the elders, the leadership, those who speak in and for the church. And so he says, look, this is what's going to happen going forward. There are things that are. There are going to be things which you've seen. And there are going to be things that take place after this. And so when you look at this marvelous book, you really get this. What you have seen is everything that we've just taken these first three studies to cover. What did you see, John? You saw the beginning of the church age. You saw me in all of my glory. You saw who I am, my character, my nature. That's all happened in 20 verses. Now, not in its totality, and certainly I'm not capable of communicating that to you in its fullness, but that's what we've seen. What did John see? John saw Jesus in his fullness. That's what he had seen. What is now, and that's going to be those things which are, that would be the church age, beginning with the church in John's time. So chapter 2, chapter 3, the seven churches, and all that they mean. We're going to take a week on each church, just so you know, so get ready. Because it's that important that you understand them. Those churches of the church age, beginning at the very beginning, going to the very last church, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Guess where we are in church history? There's ever been a time in the world's history where the church could be said to be lukewarm? Bingo. That's us. It describes almost all of the church. Now that's a sad thing. Because Jesus is going to say, I wish that you were actually hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm. You ever drink water out of a hose when it's lukewarm? Is that the nastiest taste on the earth? It's like it's not cold, it's not hot, it's lukewarm. You're like, bleh! It gives you a picture of what's coming. Very descriptive, remember? He's using symbols because they transcend time and language. They transcend time and language. And so he gives us those things which are the seven literal churches that existed in what is modern-day Turkey that would typify absolutely every church age and every condition that exists in the church age. And then he says, what will take place after this? That is going to be chapters to 22. Why is that? Because in chapter 4, the church disappears. We call that the rapture of the church. I'm looking forward to that day. 
Because the church is missing. There is no further mention of the church from chapter 4 on until the church comes back with Jesus at the second coming. Because they ain't here. We ain't there. Not going to see it. No matter how much you think you deserve the tribulation, you're not going through it. If you want to believe that, fine. I feel sorry for you. We can pray about it. We can pray about you because you think you need to have misery that you've already been saved from. Because you've been spared from the wrath of God. It's what you've been saved from, by the way. Praise the Lord. That which will take place later. And so you see the glory of his person in chapter 1, his ministry to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and that his sovereign acts on behalf of national Israel, chapters 4 to 22. Because they are the focus of the tribulation. That's why there's 144,000. That's why they're the ones that will hide and be sheltered in the rocks. That's why they're the ones that will be the tribulation saints. It's all about Israel coming to faith in Christ. Jesus is the planner. He's the procurer. He's the purpose of all of history. And so the mysteries of God, notice verse 20 says this, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw. The seven stars, the angels, the lampstands. He says these things are mysterious. Do you remember what Daniel chapter 12 said? He said, hide that truth. Wrap that, shut those words up until the time of the end in Daniel chapter 12. And he said, then knowledge will increase. You see, these things that we're seeing right now are the knowledge increasing. We're understanding more and more the things that are going on in our world are pointing towards the imminent return of our Savior. Ephesians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1, Romans chapter 16 all paint the same picture. It's a mystery. But that mystery is starting to get a whole lot clearer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing plan that you laid out before the beginning of time, that we are now seeing come to fruition before our very eyes. And Lord, we don't want to be sensationalistic about it, but we do believe that that knowledge that you spoke about to Daniel is happening even now in our generation. And so God, we look forward to studying these churches. We look forward to that time when that trumpet will sound. Lord, when... You will come for us when we will meet you in the air. Lord, that great marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, can't wait to sit down at that table and sup with you. Lord, as you promised you would. Lord, you said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone come and open the door and come in, I will sup with him and he with me. Lord, we look forward to that day. And so, God, we are grateful for the truth of your word. Pray that you would impress it to our hearts now, that we would understand the day and the time in which we live. And be busy, Lord. May we seek your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask these things in the blessed name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Messiah of the Jews, Lord. We bless you. It's in his name we pray.